This is the Dennis Miller Option. Your source of opinions, stories, and laughs from comedian and inactivist Dennis Miller and his guy Friday, Christian Blatt. What's up, Hiroshi? Let's light this candle. Ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Miller. Hey, folks. Welcome to the uh, Dennis Miller Show. Easiest show I do all year. Two guys, Carvey, Bean. Joining us in studio, actor, author, raconteur, wit, horny Christian, <laughs> good guy, longtime friend of show. His website is orsonbean.com, where you can find a link to his one-man show, Safe at Home, The Estimable Orson Bean. How are I you, can't wait to hear myself. <laughs> Jeez, I, did, I never get a build-up like that. I'm always uh, sorry I'm doing that faux humble handy thing all right, um, Orson being safe at home on YouTube. Now, Orson, I'm amazed when we were when we were youngsters. You went to uh, the Tiffany Network for news, CBS, or you went over to uh, the Peacock for a little chat over there. Or I guess ABC was the third uh, coming on the rail, though. And now there's actually a YouTube network. Tell me about Safe at Home and tell me how one goes on YouTube. And uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite. Explain, well, I, please. I think uh, you can just uh, Google Orson Bean One Man Show. That's what I do. But maybe you ha it's on YouTube. Um, mm -hmm. I put the show, that uh, the, the sequel to it, uh, that I did with my wife, Allie Mills, who was the mum on the Wonder Years before she married me. Um, we did a show called uh, All Right Then. And now you can Google that. If you, if you go on YouTube and, and type in Orson Bean Safe at Home, uh, I mean Orson Bean All Right Then, you'll see um, the sequel to, to my show, which already over 13,000 people have watched. I bragged Beautiful. about that to my wife. She said, Madonna gets a million hits. <laughs> wow. Well, imagine uh, if you had married Madonna. <laughs> and by the way, uh, your uh, name it, would be it, Madonna Bean. <laughs> it would appear that mid puberty uh, Fred Savage was hitting everything that moves. Did he come on to the uh, missus while he was over? Uh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't it, either. It I'm just kidding. God, spot. you got a makeup mirror. For <laughs> some makeup spot. lady said Fred Savage, <laughs> who was still in the amniotic fluid, put a completely unformed hand on her ass, and all of a sudden it's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, I don't know. The times we are a-changing. Um, oh, now. Aren't Bean, uh, explain uh, safe at home to the. Now listen, I am here's my career uh, trip tick at the moment. Um, I've had a few shows shot out from under me. So when I asked you to go back on things and explain them again, you have to remember I'm like River Phoenix's character in the movie where they have to go into the federal witness relocation program and they keep turning up in different venues. So when we explain Safe at Home, you, you can trust me that it will fall on pristine ears. People will not have heard right. this before. Explain the show to me. It's a one-man show about my life. It was based on a book I wrote, an autobiography called Safe at Home, which if anyone is interested, they can find on Amazon. And I turned it into a one-man show and did it at a little theater in Venice Beach, California. And uh, the chief critic from the L.A. Times, for some reason, came and gave it a rave, and it won the L.A. Drama Critics Award as Best Solo Show of the Year, and it had a long run. Then I just, I, I, somebody wanted me to bring it to New York and do it there, but I got grandkids out here. I didn't want to go back to the city, which is what anybody who lives in New York calls <laughs> the city, and uh, do that. So I put it on, on YouTube free, and you can see it just by... I think going on YouTube and then Googling Orson Bean One Man Show. That's what it is. Explain the innards. Well, it's the story of my life, really. Uh, uh, it's about a miserable childhood I had, like almost everyone else, and uh, how I grew up and learned to take care of myself. But it's full of funny stuff, too, like a moth goes into a chiropractor's office. He says, Doc, my life has hit rock bottom. My wife is having an affair. My kid has run off with a hooker. The chiropractor interrupts the moth. He says, excuse me, but shouldn't you be seeing a psychiatrist or something? Why did you come in here? He says, the light was on. <laughs> <laughs> and 
anyway, I do. <laughs> I do stuff like that along with the. the I, I thought the I thought the psychologist was going to say, "Who do I see about this hole in my cardigan?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you, you had to, you always you top to, everything I say. No, uh, no my I, you, my <laughs> my neighbor was uh, George Carlin, and uh, he. Uh, I told him. I said, I have. Of a bee joke for you, and I, I said I've never heard of a joke about bees. I told him the bee joke, and he said I got a bee joke, and he told me a better bee joke. I said, "What's your joke, George?" He says, "A businessman retires. His <laughs> wife says you're driving me crazy around the house. You got to get a hobby." He said, "I'll get a hobby." Two weeks later, she says, "You didn't get a hobby." He says, "I got a hobby." She said, "What is it? I'm a beekeeper. A beekeeper. Where's the bees? Right here in this cigar box." She says, "Those bees are dead." He says, "Fuck them. It's only a hobby." <laughs> <laughs> there, one of the one of the pluses of having George Carlin as your neighbor. Yes. The downside, of course, is if you go over to borrow some bread, the four slice down's always missing. We're talking to uh, Orson Bean. His website orsonbean.com. Now, Orson, I didn't. You know, know that you I really didn't even a... know I had a website. I mean, I have one, but as far as <laughs> I know, there's nothing on well, it. There, I... There's the link to the show. I, there, I checked the... before I put his right. notes together. Oh, yeah, oh, it's definitely okay. there. Oh, good. But that's, that's all that's there. It's just yeah, like I, I think you listed here as customer two on the internet. So you, you were in early on the customer uh, two. <laughs> you were you were made off second call. I was saying call. to Ben Franklin the other day. <laughs> um. Tell me about the upbringing, because all the times I've talked to you, I don't think I've ever asked you, did you come from uh, a uh, supportive Petri dish, or what, what, what was the uh, harsh? It was uh, a Petri dish that had been used by other people, and it wasn't <laughs> uh, pristine or of any use to me at all. Um, I grew up with alcoholic parents, and my mother threatened to commit suicide if my father ever left her. And when I was six, she said, it's your job, kid, to keep him around. Mm. So I um, worked as long as I could to keep him around, feigning great love for, for the man. And when I was 16, he left and she killed herself. So uh, you don't think that's funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just thinking about six-year-olds appointed to be gatekeepers. I know. It's heartbreaking. To be. Anyway, I, I learned to be class clown um, because I wasn't getting mm. any attention at home. I was a minor player in a, in a sordid melodrama. When I was in second grade one time, the teacher left the room, and I got up on the chair, the chair that was attached to the desk, you know, and started carrying on and getting laughs out of the kids. And the teacher walked by, and she said, oh, you like it up there? Stay there. And she made me stand there for an hour with tears of humiliation streaming down my face, and she had sent for my mother. And my mother walked in and saw me standing there. That was one of the lighter moments of my childhood. Mm -hmm. Well, teachers can really help a kid take the next step. Um, <laughs> or One, or they, they can come in and quash a dream yeah. in the space of a second. <laughs> Once they had taught me to read, write, and count, for which I'm grateful, they had nothing more to offer me. I hated school from kindergarten on. And when I, I finally did graduate from high school... And uh, I, I made a plan to graduate at the bottom of my class. It was a matter of pride to me. I would graduate, but I would graduate at the bottom of my class. And uh, actually, there were two or three large Hispanic boys that graduated after me. They, we would mar march out in order of our grades, and I was almost at the end. Uh, we had there was this fairly small auditorium in the uh, in the high school I went to, and we were offered for our parents and friends one pair of tickets downstairs, good seats, and a pair in the balcony. My churlish father said, "I'll take the pair in the balcony because he knew I was going to graduate at the bottom of my class." Meanwhile, though, Miss Hardigan, the drama teacher, had taken a shine to me and given me something called the forensic award. So even though I marched out at the end of the line of students. I was called up first when they gave out the awards. And my father afterwards said, if I'd known you were getting an award, I would have taken the downstairs seats. <laughs> I had the grace not to smirk. <laughs> now, when you told the two Hispanic kids that you graduated at the bottom of the class with that your father was churlish, did they ask for brown sugar on him? <laughs> <laughs> they waited for me outside. Hey, kids. It's my churro joke. Um, <laughs> 
or jogging. I celebrated, by the way, by taking the subway with my friend Parker Swan to Revere Beach. This was on the day I graduated. To celebrate, we took the subway to Revere Beach, which was the Coney Island of Boston, where we took in a freak show and were entertained by Albert Alberta, the half-man, half-woman. Wow. Poor Albert Alberta. He took himself dancing one night, was never seen again. (laughs) Well, he certainly didn't time the trans thing like he could have, (laughs) because... Actually, Today, years later, I ran in Westbury. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, what was that? I was saying he certainly didn't time the transition thing because today, half man, half woman, he'd be headlining Westbury instead oh, about it. The fear. <laughs> but many years later, when I was breaking into show business on, on Broadway, uh, there was a, 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 a thing on 42nd Street called Al, uh, Hubert's Museum and Flea Circus. Mm-hmm. And Albert Alberta was playing there. And I remind, I told him, I saw you years ago in Revere Beach. He said, oh, show business is not what it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) For an extra quarter, you could stay after the flea circus, and Hubert would would show you how he trained the fleas. These these were actual fleas. Uh, Two of them were chained to a little chariot and pulled the chariot when when Hubert... (laughs) Cracked his whip. Where did he get uh, the tiny whip? (laughs) (laughs) And I don't don't mean Tom DeLay. uh, (laughs) Another flea would would lie on his back and juggle a little beach ball. I I think it was astonishing that there actually were trained flea circuses and I saw them. Wow. I I always have to hover for a second and see if you're telling me a legit story. There were actually fleas? The actual fleas that were in a flea circus. If you go online, you can see uh, movies of actual fleas in a flea circus. Nobody thinks there is a flea circus or was, but there was. It's one of the benefits of being a geezer. I remember (laughs) stuff. Why why do you think we don't have flea circuses anymore? I think they went on strike like everybody else. (laughs) Was there a union, probably? A flea union. (laughs) Do you remember when... uh... Fleas united. (laughs) Fleas of the world. Flea. Fleas of the world. Um, I remember uh, David Feldman told me once, uh, he said... uh, he took his son to uh, a cock. This is a writer being, you know, nobody's a very funny writer named David Feldman. He said, I took my son to a cockfight this weekend. <laughs> I said, really? He said, they've ruined it. it they've <laughs> commercialized it. There's too much signs in the cockfighting <laughs> ring. <laughs> that made me laugh so hard. But that cock- was the downside with cockfighting yes, is they overly commercialized <laughs> it. Oh, God. Um, Feldman, now being, when, Feldman was a writer, you said? Yeah, David Feldman. A brilliant group, writer. A group the, of young uh, 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 sitcom writers invited me to lunch one day. I was the I was the the table goy, hmm. and uh, <laughs> they were very proud of the fact they had a softball team. They were originally from Coney Island, several of them, and they called their team the Coney Island Whitefish. <laughs> now, I, don't, I don't want to explain what what a Coney Island Whitefish is, but they it's not it's not a deli a deli thing. <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> Yes, if you've lived in any major city near a river and you're a kid and all of a sudden there's a deflated balloon animal floating by you, that's what it is. It's not a delicacy. But what they lived for was getting it into the local edition of the Los Angeles Times that on Saturday the Coney Island Whitefish would play the Burbank (laughs) Warriors or something. We got it in! (laughs) Yeah, we had a a group of kids in my ninth grade who uh, had formed an intramural team called the Chilobis. And that was a Portuguese word for breast muscle. So in the morning, <laughs> in the morning, they'd read the results from the the pitch on the day before, and they go in the chilobies. <laughs> As I said, I was the one goy at the table, and I, I foolishly said, "Is Mel Brooks related to Albert Brooks?" <laughs> they laughed. I said, "No, Mel Brooks is from the Rappaport Brooks. <laughs> the, the, the other Brooks is from the Shapiro Brooks. Right? Wow. The Einstein Brooks. <laughs> Actually, it's the Einstein." I remember uh, uh, Einstein's father, who played a character on the radio named Parkyakarkas. He was a Greek, and he would appear on various radio sitcoms. 
That actually makes me laugh. I can see where uh, Albert, obviously, and uh, his brother Bob got their weird left-hand turns. Yeah. Uh, if you're still using one of the big wireless providers in 2019, have you asked yourself what you're paying for? Between expensive retail stores, inflated prices, hidden fees, you're being taken advantage of because they know you'll pay. Enter Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage that you're used to, but a fraction of the cost because everything is online. Mint Mobile saves on retail locations and overhead, then passes those savings directly on to you. Christian, you uh, you got the Mint Mobile before me. My yes. experience is less broad at this moment, although it's growing. Tell me what you're digging about it as you're a man about town. So to start with, they sent me this great How little How dare clip. you talk when I'm doing a commercial <laughs> read? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I kid the kid. Go ahead. I'm watching they, you grow here. They, this they, watching <laughs> Scotty grow. I'm going to do some earning, boss. <laughs> we uh, So they sent me this great kit. It's like T-shirts and mugs and all the stuff with the logo on it. And I'm like, great. And then they send you the SIM card to put into your phone. And I'm so embarrassed. I uh, break it when I try and put it in my phone. And then I do this call with them and I have to like write to the lady on the side. She's a very nice woman. And I was like, yeah, I broke it. Can you send me another one? <laughs> I had it the next day. Ah, so it was, a, so if that's any indication of what the service, service is like. Yeah. Too. Hey, can you tell them the next time you talk to them that they ought to have a Mint Mobile uh, for kids where the parents can monitor the calls and call Junior Mint Mobile? I love that. <laughs> Junior Mint. <laughs> Uh, what I will say is when you hear that it's $15 a month, I was like, all right, well, what's the service going to be like? Is it you know, going to drop off, be staticky? But I was impressed by you know just how good it sounded. There are times that I've talked to you where, unbeknownst to you, we were using Mint Mobile. and uh, Christian, you don't have to tell me. I remember sitting on the other side <laughs> thing. I usually hate talking to this person. <laughs> but he's in mint condition today. <laughs> Bagged and boarded. Mint Mobile makes it easy to cut your wireless bill down, as Christian said, to just 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text with mint mobile stop paying for unlimited data you'll never use choose between plans with three eight or 12 gigabytes of 4g lte data use your own phone with any mint mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts if you like your provider you can keep your provider and i mean it he didn't. <laughs> Ditch your old wireless bill and start saving with Mint Mobile. All right. Troops, call to action. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash Miller. That's mintmobile.com slash Miller. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash Miller. I feel like Patton when I read those call to actions. <laughs> You know, when you stick your hand in a pile of goo, <laughs> 10 minutes ago was your best friend. You'll know what to do with the hun. <laughs> now, listen, I mean, I'm trying to uh, segue out of a childhood that is less than a uh, less than a, I don't, I don't know, a fulfilling launching pad. When do you first think you have chops? As you're crying up there on that tabletop, do you realize you have chops? And how do you make the first move to some sort of... Uh, professional or moving that way career uh, i was given a gilbert magic set when i was seven and never recovered i spent hours in the bedroom fumbling the billiard ball and developed a, a magic act and i got to the point where i could i could entertain at the methodist church friday night supper and get two bucks mm -hmm. and then world war ii came and all the magicians were off fighting the axis mm -hmm. along with Plumbers and welders and doctors, magicians were over there fighting Hitler too. So I suddenly, when I was still in high school and I was 17 years old, was able to work in nightclubs. There was a full year's work in nightclubs around New England. Um, these were working class clubs. There was no TV in those days. So people still went out on a Friday and Saturday night. Uh, even when TV came in, almost nobody had a set. You would go to a bar on um, Tuesdays uh, to watch Milton Berle uh, or, or mm -hmm. Wednesday, and then on Saturday you'd go back to watch Sid Caesar. And so they did business that way. But because people weren't <coughs> home watching The Sopranos or something, they went out still. This is in the late 40s, well, the mid-40s. Mm -hmm. And um, they uh, uh, and they went to these nightclubs, and uh, a guy like me could... 
you know, make 15 bucks a night. Right, because the top act. tier at that point had, yeah, uh, it was over there. You know, it, it reminds me of the story of the great uh, Mets, or not Mets, uh, Cincinnati Reds hurler, Joel Nuxall. Uh, he w- went to the majors when he was 15 years old for the same sort of reason that wow. everybody everybody had gone over there and he was a big kid with a feller-like arm, I guess. And, wow. Uh, I think he's the youngest person ever to pitch in the show, a 15-year-old. So when you would there look at the There was a good movie cra- about a girls' baseball team that there were, there were young women that played baseball during the war because the guys were off. And yeah, look at that I remember movie. in the movie the guy says, uh, uh, we'd like to hire you and uh, we'd pay $35 a week. And uh, Madonna or whoever the actress was says, we get twenty seven fifty now. He said, well, then, that would be more, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was Lovitz, by the way. John Lovitz. Is, well, John, that would be more, wouldn't it? John yeah. Lovitz. That's John Lovitz, yeah. And, then, and by the way, if you thought Madonna was getting a million hits on Facebook, you should have seen her when she was on a film set. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> John Lovett, I forgot who it was. He's wonderful. He, he, he was on... He was on live TV, and you know they still had a six-minute, six-second delay. They could bleep mm-hmm. something, and he and he's doing a Shakespearean thing. He says, "People say that uh, since I'm in show business, I, I have a big ego." <laughs> and my answer is always no, no, a thousand times no. <laughs> and then out of nowhere, he did milk, milk. Lemonade, round the corner, fudge is made. <laughs> I'd never heard that, and I suddenly realized that's a little kid thing, and it's dirty. <laughs> but the senses didn't get it either, and they left it in. <laughs> well, John does have a beautifully eloquent uh, little kid in him. I can say that as his age-old friend, that he, he does remember things like that from his youth because yes. he's so uh, he's such a sweet boy in a way. Now, being, um, okay, so there's where the, uh, the chops are starting to be established, but I know you, you as such a avuncular wit and raconteur, and I know in an odd way, I think magic was more accepted then, but at some point I don't know that people hear you as much when they're being waylaid by some leisure and bane. So when do you start going less magic, more verbal as a Well, performer? if you want to do stand-up comedy, you start with magic often, Johnny. Carson did a great mm-hmm. many uh, people have started with magic because you can't just get up and say, here I am, I'm funny. But right. you can get up and pull a rabbit out of a hat or something and then do some what the magicians call patter along the way. The patter mm-hmm. is jokes, really. So little by little, when... Uh, uh, when I graduated from high school after I saw Albert Alberto, the half-man, half-woman, I joined the Army. You could get your uh, selective service over with in 18 months in those days. It was a good deal. Uh, friends of mine who didn't take it were still eligible for the draft and wound mm-hmm. up spending long, miserable years in Korea. So I went to Japan and spent a year on occupation duty and did my magic act to, to entertain the troops and get out of KP. And I came back and started working in these clubs. I played the Latin Quarter in mm-hmm. Fall River. And uh, I did less and less magic and then finally dropped it completely and did comedy. And when I went to New York, I, I got lucky and walked into a nightclub called the Blue Angel. And Well, let's go slow on the village stuff because I absolutely, <laughs> right. that's its own separate world. I just want to say, I think Steve Martin also at the beginning. Absolutely. Uh, he did a balloon act. Yes. Uh, which he took from a guy named Wally Boag. Right, that's right. I, I, I I'm a walking compendium of semi-useless <laughs> information. <laughs> well, and you know, Steve has, in, a, in an odd way, uh, Orson, he's circled back to doing patter, only he does it now as he tunes up his different banjos when yeah. he goes out to perform. And I have to tell you, and I've probably told this ad nauseum, Christian, you can check out here and go get a toddy <laughs> if you want, because this is one of my favorite jokes ever. But I went to see Steve's banjo. Banjo act. I've also seen him with Marty Short, where there's some banjo, but it's also more interaction with Marty. But when I went to see his banjo act, he changed banjos. He was tuning up, and he said, this next song I've written, and I know people say to me, Steve, how do you write bluegrass music? What do you draw on? And he's tuning, and he says, oh, well, I draw on the pain of my day-to-day life. Uh, this one's called, uh-oh, I think my masseuse might be chatty. <laughs> we all that's have our- one of my favorite <laughs> jokes it's such a patrician joke we have our burdens to carry <laughs> an old right. lady uh, uh, somebody told me there was a group of people 
discussing the definition of a gentleman, and there were different definitions, and when it came to her, she said, my definition of a gentleman is someone who can play the accordion but chooses not to. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> now, Bean, you've been in the back room. You've been in the room off stage with two subsets that I'm fascinated by, magicians and comedians. Can you break down the similarities, the differences? Who did you find more urbane, more witty, more pragmatic? Or were they pretty much or entertainers all under the same umbrella? Or tell me about the, the different, uh, uh, those two different sorts of entertainers. What Dennis, have you noticed I don't find that? the question interesting. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we can move on for a minute. I was just trying to build a little drama before we got to the village because I'm so enamored of that time. American I was in. Uh, I was being interviewed by a reporter who told me that the, the week before he had inter interviewed Count Basie, uh, mm -hmm. Count Basie was appearing at Birdland and uh, playing his great music. And he told me that when he was in the office of Birdland uh, interviewing the Count, he he had heard that the bass player was giving Count Basie. Uh, trouble and threatening to quit. And he said, while I'm in the office, the door opens and the bass player look, sticks his head in, looks at Count Basie and says, Count Basie, three weeks from now, I will have been gone a week. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's such, there is, Two you know, notice. there is Jewish turns of phrases and black turns of phrases. There are others too, but those are the those are the two categories that I find fascinating. I worked on the Merv Griffin show once with Martha and the Vandellas. Hmm. And one of the uh, Vandellas was giving Martha a hard time in the green room, saying, Martha this and Martha that. And you, what you don't understand, Martha. And Martha just stood listening to her and finally said, shut up, girl. You're making too much noise with your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll cut you to the quick. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I went to see Frank Langella in uh, Count... Dracula on Broadway, and I was always hoping that when he, he, I think he did a year and then naturally you tire and you move on, and I was always hoping they'd replace uh, him and Count Dracula with Count Basie. I just thought it would be a completely, <laughs> just a completely different where he'd sit next to Lucy's bedside and do the greatest arrangements in the world for the, her, and she that wanted the first professional theater I ever saw, my parents took me to a touring company that was passing through Boston, appearing at the Wilbur Theater, and we, we paid a quarter and sat up in the balcony. I've and played that, Bean. I think it's still there. It, it is very much yeah. still there. And um, it was Bella Lugosi touring in Dracula, which was a, a play. He, mm -hmm. he was a, an actor of some esteem in Hungary, and when they sure. brought him over here and cast him in the movies as Dracula, and it was such a huge hit he couldn't fancied himself having come down in the world. But anyway, the best thing about it was after the play, the final curtain where Dracula gets a stake driven through his heart and dies, he came out and did a little curtain speech. And he says, when you're walking home tonight, perhaps you will pass something that appears to be a shadow out of the corner of your eyes. And you turn and look and it's gone. And then it appears again, be very careful. And I was walking to the subway with my parents <laughs> when we left the theater. I was 12, and every shadow, my heart stopped. And it was a very effective curtain speech. Yeah, and oddly enough, it was Lugosi in the shadows. He was taking the right <laughs> from the people so. on the subway because he wasn't making Probably any money. So. You know, when, you, when, you, when you're, uh, I think he protested that for the rest of his life he had to uh, play Dracula, but as uh, uh, typecasting goes, well, I mean, type O casting goes, I, th I think there are worse things than that. He, he will now, he might not have had what he wanted in the direct moment, but he'll live forever, guys like him and Karloff. So that's a, its own interesting thing. I did, uh, I, I had the great good fortune of doing the very first coast to coast live color broadcast. NBC had laid a coaxial cable across the nation. This is before the age of Sputnik when you could didn't need and they buried they spent a fortune buying the rights to people's property across America to lay a coaxial cable and to celebrate the fact that for the first time they could they could uh, do live color broadcasting. They did what they called a special and it was the Broadway show Arsenic and Old Lace. Mm -hmm. I played the Cary Grant part and I worked with Boris Karloff, Peter Laurie, 
And the two old ladies who are stars of the show were Helen Hayes and Billy Burke. Billy wow. Burke is the good witch, uh, Glinda, the good witch of the something, east or west, who says, come out, come out, wherever you are, mm -hmm. and meet the young lady who fell from a star. She fell very far, she fell from a star. <laughs> I, I wander sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> But I worked with Karloff, who was a great gentleman. Laurie was miserable. Oh, it's hot. Oh, when are we going to get a break? <laughs> and uh, Karloff would say, relax, Peter. It's all in a day's work. I asked for a double-wide trailer. <laughs> Bean, I hope you're able to look back and enjoy the... Uh, I, I know you are, but I, mean, I know you. I'm acting... Naive for the purpose of the question, but geez, what a fun, eclectic life you've led. And and to be blessed with an attendant good memory and an ability to tell the tale, yeah. it really is one of those things where they say, well, you know, before we had books and stories and all that, there you had to be a tale teller. Yes. I, I view you as well, almost a tribal, the human tribe tale teller. What, what's the name in Africa for the people who remember tales and tell them the history of the tribe? There's I think it's name. Paul Theroux. No, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the travel writers. Um, but yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. Hey, you struggling to sleep these days? I would tell you to listen to my podcast, but I don't know that's the purpose of it. <laughs> it puts sleeps off by 45 minutes, then you're out. But if in the interim, you can't do that. You're not alone. One in three U.S. adults doesn't get enough sleep. But if you're not sleeping enough, it can affect your cognitive functions during the day, like learning, problem solving, decision making. And Christian would tell you the act of love. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that a good night's sleep is like a magic remedy for the brain and body? When we sleep well, we're more focused and relaxed. And best of all, sleep makes us happier. And that's why we're partnering with Calm, the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. The sleepless are more prone to accidents, weight gain, and depression. With Calm, you'll discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and body needs, like soundscapes and over 100 sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones, and Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. Right now, Dennis Miller listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Miller. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash Miller. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash Miller. <laughs> Um, all right, so we get to my favorite uh, part of the ramble, because to be a young person, and I've talked to Joan about this, and uh, you know anybody I can who was in the village around that time, how do you, how, how do you literally, let, let's talk about in the, in the macro, we'll talk about your early days there, but I'm trying to, th in the micro, what's the first night? When do you go into the village to perform for the first time? Well, I, uh, what happened was I came to New York, and I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. Uh, and and I had no business expecting to do well. I checked into a, a flea bag hotel. Uh, there were still elevator operators in those days. And he took me to my room on the 11th floor. And when the elevator stopped, he turned to me and said, ah, with a big sigh, I don't know. You know? <laughs> I found that oddly compelling. <laughs> And I've never forgotten it. <laughs> no, that's that's as wise as anything. Yes, ever. it's become my mantra. I, I don't know, you know. I so you're staying in the Barbizon Hotel for boards at this point. <laughs> oh no, not the Barbizon. It was Mel's Hotel on Eighth Avenue or Irv's or something. Anyway, I took the Crosstown bus over to the Blue Angel, which was a well-known supper club. Mm. This was three in the afternoon, where you know Eartha Kitt played and, you know, all kinds of famous people. Mm. And I walked up to the door of the club at three in the afternoon and tried it. And to my astonishment, it was unlocked. I walked in to the, to, found myself in a room with a single light bulb overhead. The chairs were up on tables. There was mm. a bar in the left-hand corner. There was a pair of swinging doors on the far side, which I assumed led to the inner room where the entertainment I 
I figured took place. Mm. It was a flight of stairs, and I walked up and past the ladies' room and the men's room. There was a, a light coming from an open door, and I walked to it. I was 18 years old. My act consisted of wearing a three-button gray piece suit and saying, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name was is Orson Bean, Harvard 48, Yale nothing. <laughs> <laughs> there was a man sitting there. I, I, I was actually 21. I had gotten out of the Army and come back. And he said, what do you want? I said, I'm a comic. He said, yeah, say something funny. I said, belly button. <laughs> there was a moment's pause. He got this half smile on his face. He said, I'm short on that. Come back tonight at 10, I'll put you on. <laughs> I, I went back to my uh, room at the hotel and uh, put on my one clean shirt and my mm-hmm. gray flannel suit. And I took the bus back. The Blue Angel was packed. I sat at the bar and ordered a Coke. Bobby Short was playing the piano sure. for the people who were waiting for the customer. From the to- Carlisle later. Yes. He wasn't at the Carlisle in those days. He was at the Blue Angel. And so Max Gordon appeared. He said, oh, there you are. He says, come on inside and uh, get a feel for the room. I followed him through the swinging doors and leaned against the wall. Eartha Kitt was singing. Mm-hmm. And after each number, the crowd applauded. And then the uh, the MC said, and now we have a special uh, a guest appearing. And there was just a smattering of applause. And I got up and said, good evening. My name is Orson Bean, Harvard 48, Yale nothing. The People laughed. I had never gotten a laugh at the at the Moose Club in Pawtucket with, with mm-hmm. that joke. Pawtucket, home of the uh, National Limerick Museum. And the rest of the act got laughs. And right after the, the show, mm-hmm. Max Gordon, the owner, signed me to a six-month contract for 125 a week, unheard of money. It turned out there had been an associate of the famous uh, gossip columnist Walter Winchell, and he said, look in the paper the next day. Mm-hmm. And it said in Walter Winchell's column, his name is Orson Bean. We never heard of him either. <laughs> he appeared last night unannounced at the Blue Angel and brought down the house. My career took off oh, and my God, was off and running. It's like it's like the comic, except you're more urba- urbane, that Sidney Falco helps in The Sweet Smell of Success, where yeah. he goes and sees the column and then goes over to see Herbie and then dictates, uh, J.J., can you give me something in the column about that? Uh, and, uh, and it uh, changes his life, too. But uh, obviously his act was not. It's as, uh, serendipity or I, I don't think it's coincidence. Uh, somebody once said to me, belief in coincidence is a form of superstition. I think God was looking after me long before I ever believed in him mm-hmm. for something like that to happen. Well, it's very heady wine. I'm trying to think, um, how do you handle that pretty immediate dissension? I, I know there was some legwork done in the service and obviously out doing these roadhouses and and Jersey and Long Island with your magic act. But how how did you handle all of a sudden being in the eye of it like that? I just handled it. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a, like a unicyclist with a flat. I just, uh, uh, I, I found an apartment and, and moved into it. And um, producers began coming into the Blue Angel and wow. catching my act. And I, I was able to audition for Broadway plays. And I started getting parts in plays. And um, hmm. I became more of an actor than, than a comic. Um, at one point, I I was a big lefty, of course, as all yes, you're supposed to be in your twenties, and I got involved in um, the, the union, AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and I I ran for office on an anti-blacklist slate. It was the days of the Cold War and McCarthy and Red Channels, and for my pains, I got blacklisted, mm-hmm. and. Uh, just stopped working on television. Uh, I, I'm, I'm jumping ahead to the point where I had done the Ed Sullivan show eight or nine times, and Ed himself called me and said, "Have you heard about? Uh, have you heard about the Red Channels thing?" I said, "No," and uh, he said, "Well, I'm afraid the the booking Sunday is out. I'll help you when I can." And overnight, mm-hmm. I saw the doorman at CBS turn away to avoid being caught speaking to me. I watched actors cross the street to avoid speaking to me. 
However, God was looking after me before I believed in him. I got cast in a Broadway show, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, that ran a year. Mm -hmm. uh, in those days, uh, the, the blacklisting was always done by the sponsors. Uh, the networks didn't like the blacklist. It was an expensive inconvenience for them because red channels would pay, would, would charge CBS or NBC $50 a head to clear actors. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like a protection racket. So there was no blacklist on Broadway because there was no sponsor. You didn't pay a sponsor who then right. put the show on. You, you, you paid direct to the show. Well, after a year, Ed called me up and said, I think I can help you now. The, enough had happened that Ed Sullivan put me back on his show one last time, and the blacklist for me was over. I'm trying to think of as bright as I know you to be. I'm trying to think, what is the confluence of naivete... Uh, age, feeling your oats, trying to get laid by young Bolshevik women. Well, what, what, uh, how did you, you know, get drawn that way into, uh, I, I, I can't see you in Haymarket Square, right? But obviously you're lefty at that point. What did lefty mean to you, I guess? Lefty what meant what it means to all young people. Uh, eh, it's not fair. It's not fair that some people are richer than others. It's not fair. This. It's not fair that I've raised four kids. And the, the mantra I heard from All Fair was, it's not fair. He gets to stay up later than I do. It's not fair. He got that, the last piece of pie. And as they grew up, they stopped saying it's not fair. Well, some people never stop saying it's not fair. And those are the people who, who become socialists. Wow. That's, uh, that's as wise as I don't know you know right yeah. there. That's yeah. pretty pure distillation. Well, I was All saying right, it's uh, not fair in those days. Now, listen, I always think of you as the reason they involved in, in, invented saltpeter, because you were a frisky young lad. <laughs> um, did you did you take a run at Eartha Kitt and then tell me when you go over to Rock Hunter who's in that? Did you take a run at Eartha? I didn't take a run at Eartha, but I did take a run at this one and that one. And to my uh, astonishment, uh, the answer was frequently yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, witty, urbane in the village at the Blue Angel. Trust me, babe, you you were you were uh, a uh, a maypole, quite frankly, literally at that point. I believe oh, a but, maypole. Uh, but when you go over to uh, um, the the play, I think is not the great Jane Mansfield in that, or at that point, or when you do go over Rock to Hunter, doing who's, who's plays the, on Broadway, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think who would have been in Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter. It was the, the very uh, first thing that Jane Mansfield ever did. Mm -hmm. uh, she she was right out of college in Texas and never had a professional job, and they needed a Marilyn Monroe lookalike. The story is that I'm this young writer for Screenplay Magazine or something like that, and I come to interview for her. And her agent, who is the devil, uh, for 10% of my soul, uh, makes the Marilyn Monroe character fall in love with me. Uh, Walter Matthau was all, also in the show, and he, we ran a year, and he bitched the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> he had never been in a show that ran longer than three days and suddenly he was in a long run and he didn't like it. So he was insulted that they yes. canceled. <laughs> Off stage he would complain about Jane Mansfield. That's who everybody came to see. You know, she had the most incredible set of boobs that God ever put on a woman and the people came to see that and uh, uh, Walter Matthau would complain to me, this is the bitch upstaged me again last night. I said, Walter, she's an amateur. She does it by mistake. He says, oh, how come never once by mistake she downstages me? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, quite frankly, when you're above a 36 cup, you, you it's, it's impossible to be downstage from somebody. You're <laughs> always, uh, I think it's uh, some rule of physics that you're always upstage. She was a thing of wonder. I actually introduced her to Mickey Hargitay, whom she married. Oh, I had gone to the Latin Quarter to see Mae West do an act. She was quite old, but still playing yes. the sex part. And she had four muscle builders behind her, the way sometimes a, a guy would have four beautiful women mm -hmm. behind him. So one of the mu muscle builders was Mickey Hargitay. And I recognized him when he came to the stage door. And I said, I guess you want to meet Jane Mansfield. I said, yeah, I do. And, uh, <laughs> I, I said, Jane, there's someone here to uh, wants to say hello to you. And I brought him in. And they immediately fell in love 
and I saw them walking up 44th Street, hand in hand, him with his body, her with her body. It was like the Aurora Borealis. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they got married, and they had... Yeah, the spawn uh, of their union just did her 470th CSI SVU. What's the spawn's name? I forgot. Mar- Mariska, Har- Mariska. Mariska Hargitay, yeah. You have a feeling Mickey might have participated in the naming yes, there. <laughs> Mariska. Um, we're talking to the uh, the great Orson Bean. Bean, when you were, um, and like you said, when you were uh, being blacklisted, it, inf- it it definitely got more horrific for other people. There weren't people who had the te- a multi-pronged talent that they could go over and take it to Broadway. There were writers and people like that. W- would you guys get together in some sort of encounter group? Did you feel like a commonality in the fact that you were all pariahs or did you want to avoid each other because you didn't want to double down on what was perceived to be the sin? I just know it didn't end as happily, obviously, for many people as it did for you, getting foisted over onto Broadway for uh, a year and, and foist is the wrong word, but getting uh, picked up there and then Ed coming back in at the end of the year and picking it up there. Uh, I, I think it's a matter of attitude. I, I, di- I never got together with other blacklistees. Uh, I just said, okay, I'm blacklisted. What's next? I mean, uh, all my life I had just gone on and uh, not thought too seriously about anything. I, I wasn't terribly hurt by the fact that I was blacklisted. And it wasn't just that I got a play. It's that I just, I had I had a kind of a philo- philosophical attitude of, I don't give a shit. <laughs> and I, I just had that kind of give, I don't give a shit attitude, and I, I went about my business. I didn't mind that the doorman at CBS turned away to avoid speaking to me because I never liked him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that God was holding you in his embrace there too, and you did not, uh, you weren't aware of it at that time? I'm I was totally unaware of it, and there's no doubt in my mind that God was looking after me. Why was the do- front door to the Blue Angel unlocked that any bum could have come in? And this bum came in. And why was the owner of the club sitting there? And why did he laugh when I said belly button and, and put me on? Uh, why did I get a, a job in a play as soon as I couldn't work on TV? And all, all of these things. When I was in Philadelphia... Uh, I had gone from Boston to Philly. As I said, I did a full year's work in working-class nightclubs in places like Fall River and Pawtucket. Then I went to Philly and spent a year there honing my act, writing new material, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't getting anywhere, and I was literally down to just enough money to take the bus back to Boston and give up, and I got a call in my room. The phone had never rung. I was startled, and um, it was a guy named Tommy Tatler, who was a manager, and he told me, I heard you went on in this club last night. I had gone on in a club where you could go on for free, and he said, uh, would you come tonight and go on at another place? And I did, and got big laughs, and Tommy Tatler signed me up, and I went from literally having no hmm. money at all to to being a working act, as they say, around Philly. So I spent another few months in Philly, and then I took the bus to New York and tried the door at the Blue Angel and went to work. I'm trying to think, um, and I'm, I'm not asking this in a, I don't want to make this question too naive. I have my own thoughts on it. But do you think God holds everybody in his embrace like that, at, unbeknownst I, to them? Or I'm, I'm trying to think, why would he sing the lot Orson Bean? I don't believe that your perception of a loving God does think it's singled out you. I'm trying to think, does everybody have that capability if they open themselves to it? I suppose so, but I don't know. I don't know about anything. I don't know if there's a heaven <laughs> or a hell. I don't know if when I die, I'll, I'll go on. I I think I will. I It took me a long time to come to the realization that God loves me. I believe God loves every child when he's born. Uh, that every child is precious to him. And it took me an awful long time to to come to that understanding because I didn't feel lovable. I had grown up feeling unlovable uh, by my parents and therefore unlovable at all, which is why I kept trying to get people to love me by making them laugh and stuff. But one day I finally realized that God actually loves me, which is why he put together put me together with Allie Mills, my wife of 26 years now. And she was as screwed up as I was. And, you know, 
all of her stuff from her childhood came up against my stuff from my childhood, and we made each other grow. We either had to walk away from each other or stick it out and grow. And I think that's a God thing that put us together. And after 26 years, we're really happy together, and I'm the luckiest son of a bitch on the face of God's green earth. <laughs> well, here's something. Here's uh, I don't I, like I'm, fucking I'm, I'm religion, if that's your answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm predisposed to be a Christian myself, but one of the problems I have is what if, as one of all God's children, met another one of all God's children, and it was Albert Mills, and you fell in love, and I, I don't quite get how the Christian community, and I don't decry him for it. I mean, when people believe, they believe, but I don't understand, just as somebody who fancies himself a Christian, I think, uh, I don't quite understand how they get to this point where if people are gay and they fall in love, that that's a, do you think that's a problem with God? I, if I, I people don't. are gay and fall in love? Yeah, I, I'm just saying that sometimes you hear Christian people talking about it in, you know, the love between two human beings, which I find touching and sweet. When it's homosexual love, I have heard certain Christian contingents deem it to be an abomination, and I, I don't quite get that. What's your thoughts? I, I, the only guys who want to get married these days are gay guys because they couldn't. Um, and I've been to four weddings in recent years, and only one of them was heterosexual. Uh, I don't understand anything. I just know. One time, I've never prayed, and, and uh, somebody very close to me betrayed me, and I had, I had to pray and pray and pray for hours a day for, for weeks. And finally, at the end of it, I had forgiven the person, but more importantly... I realize God is really there and really loves me. Uh, I don't understand any of it, and I don't try to understand any of it. All I do know is that anything that is created by man, such as religion, gets fucked up. And <laughs> religion is fucked up. Any religion is fucked up. So I just leave out the middleman and mm -hmm. deal direct with the maker for big savings. Well, listen, one man's betrayal is another man's windfall. What Orson's referring to there, of course, is we used to share season tickets at the Dodger games. We had four seats. He went to the West End of London to do Safe at Home as a one-man one play there. I had an offer from Erwin Winkler, film producer, to buy the four seats at quite a premium. I sold them, and he constantly refers to it as a betrayal, but <laughs> I, I know you spent the money on a Maserati. Um, well, as Erwin uh, knows, you're a swine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dennis, let me interject for a moment. Uh, Orson's been kind enough to stay with us for another episode. Oh, but beautiful. We, we well, are let's out pick of time it up on the one. other side yeah. of this. The lovely Orson being with us. His show, Safe at Home, on YouTube, and uh, his recent stage show, All Right Then, with his wife. I want to pick up on that. We are blessed enough to uh, have a Orson for a second uh, podcast, and we'll see you right after this. Thanks for listening to The Dennis Miller Option, exclusively on Westwood One. Tune in to new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday on the Westwood One app, westwoodone.com, and on Apple Podcasts. And remember to rate, review, and share. Until next time, that's the show, and we are out of here. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.